0: In the last number of years, uh, Patricia, my wife, and I have had the privilege and the opportunity to walk with uh, newly engaged couples in the weeks leading up to their wedding in what we call premarital counseling. Maybe some of you have experienced something similar. The idea is basically we meet with them once a week or so uh, in those weeks leading up, in the, the final weeks of their engagement, to, uh, I guess, prepare them for what lies ahead through conversation. And we talk about a number of different things. We talk about... Um, Obviously, a biblical view of marriage, which has been so lost, it seems, today. Uh, We talk about the necessity of having Christ in their relationship moving forward, both individually and as a couple. Uh, We talk about practical things like communication and conflict resolution and in-laws. Something that Patricia and I have actually found disproportionately helpful, though, in all of these conversations, and probably it's because we're projecting onto these couple, something that we didn't have, that we weren't prepared for when we went into marriage, is expectation management. What are you expecting going into marriage? See, Patricia and I, we came in ill-equipped, we'll say. I came into marriage as someone who had lived on his own for quite a while and had established a life that he enjoyed and a structure that worked for me. I guess in retrospect, I look back and I think, I figured Patricia would just kind of be an appendage to that routine. She would just kind of slide in like a new appliance, I guess, yeah. Mister Romantic. But yeah. Yeah. on the other hand, she'll say that she um, she came into marriage with a severe case of Disneyitis. You know, she expected a happily ever after. That she expected Prince Charming, and as you can see, um, woefully inaccurate with her expectations. Tall, dark, and handsome, huh? Yeah. Strike one, strike two. Yeah. I've heard it said that in the gap between expectations and reality is where the monster of disappointment and disillusionment lives. In that area there. And Patricia and I, because we came with these immature, bizarre expectations of marriage, when we got into marriage, the first couple of years took some time fighting those beasts of disillusionment and and frustration— Because our expectations were not managed. And you and I know well that, that this is not unique to marriage and relationships. In fact, anything that we place unrealistic expectations upon can lead to this same issue. Frustration, disillusionment. Think about money. Or a degree. Or the perfect job. Or children. Or retirement or the perfect holiday, traveling, all of those things are not bad things. But when we place on them expectations that are unrealistic and they're not meant to bear the weight of such expectations, inevitably we come to a place where we are frustrated and disappointed because they don't live up to their billing. I want to suggest this morning that following Jesus is much the same. That we can have wild expectations about what this will be like. And it can lead to some pretty disappointing and disheartening experiences. And there are a lot of wacky ideas out there as to what being a Christian is supposed to entail. A lot of weird ideas. And unfortunately, if they are not biblical, if they're not rooted in Scripture, then they too will inevitably lead to frustration and disappointment and disillusionment. And some of you in this room have probably even experienced that. You were told, follow Jesus, and everything else will take care of itself. Prosperity, no more problems. He's the answer to all the issues in life. And you get a week into it, and you say, hang on a second. This is not what I was told it would be like. And you have to readjust and deal with the frustration and disillusionment that comes along with misguided expectations. Well, we want to develop right expectations as individuals and as a church family about what it's like to follow Jesus. And, and in Mark chapter 1, the first 20 verses is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that God doesn't want us to be frustrated. He doesn't want us to be disillusioned. He doesn't want us to be disappointed. He wants us going into this journey of discipleship with eyes wide open. He wants us to know what to expect. And we're going to see that in this passage this morning. We're going to see that there are blessings to following Jesus, no doubt, but there are also costs. There are costs to following him, and Mark wants us to be aware of that right at the outset. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, and I want to try something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, stand with me, and we'll read through this passage together as we embark on this journey through Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he... We'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going along a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, just a quick reading of that passage. You probably noticed that there are three main characters or groups of characters in that passage. We've got John, and then Jesus, and then at the end we've got the disciples. Now what you might not have noticed, or maybe you did, is that there's a pattern that Mark uses to introduce each of these characters or groups of characters. He follows the same pattern along the way. He gives a calling, a commissioning, and then consequences. They're called, they're identified by God, it's a divine calling, and then they're commissioned, they're given an assignment, And then he lays out consequences for faithfulness to that assignment. I want to look at each of these as Mark records them for us this morning, beginning with the calling. Each of these characters, as I said, are called out by God. It's a divine calling. First, let's look at John's, John's call. Well, he's called to be a messenger, is he not? A messenger. We look at the first uh, three verses. He says, behold, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice crying in the wilderness. He's the messenger of God. And in these opening three verses, Mark is quoting from the Old Testament prophets. He's quoting from the prophets who, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, anticipated a coming forerunner for the Messiah. A herald. An announcer for the Christ, the one who had come. And Mark here is taking those prophecies, putting them together and saying, John's the guy. John's the one that they were anticipating. He's him. He's the one the Holy Spirit was talking about. And so we see at the beginning that John is called, he's identified, he's pointed out by the Holy Spirit. This is him. And we drop down to verse 9 and we look at Jesus' call. He's called the beloved Son of God. Verse 9 In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So as promised, this forerunner comes along and he announces one is coming after. That's mightier than I. I can't even touch his feet. He is so amazing. He's far beyond me. And then Jesus appears out of Galilee, this nowhere town, right? And along with all the other Judeans, he's being baptized by John. And we need to understand that, that the baptism that Jesus goes under, that he encounters, is not like everyone else. Everyone else is going in for the repentance, for confessing their sins. Jesus has nothing to confess. Jesus, instead, is baptized to identify with humanity— and to express his submission to the will of the Father. But he's identified. He's, he's baptized by John. Verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And here comes the calling. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And so we have John, who is called by the Holy Spirit to be a messenger of God, to prepare the way. Jesus here is called a beloved son. He's identified, he's singled out, you are my beloved son. Finally, lo- notice the disciples' call, the third call. They're called to be followers of God. So we have God's messenger, we have God's son, and now we have God's followers. Verse 16, Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee, he sees these men, and in verse 17 he says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then again in verse 20, 19 and 20, he sees more men. He calls to them, and they come following. So Jesus is walking along. He sees these men, identifies them, and calls them out specifically. Says, you, come, be a follower of God. So we have three calls here. Okay, Three divine callings. I want you to notice something interesting that Mark's doing. John was called by God the Holy Spirit to be God's messenger. Jesus was called by God the Father, his beloved son. And the disciples are called by God the Son to be God's followers. See, Mark is creatively interweaving the Holy Trinity into this opening passage of Scripture, saying all members of the Godhead are involved here in these divine callings. What about our calling? Have you ever thought about yourself as called by God? Singled out? You. I want you. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, that means that at some point in your personal history, you trusted in the Son of God, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And at that moment, you were born again, you were indwelled, you were sealed by God the Spirit. So we were called by the entirety of the Godhead, individually, singled out you, I want you, and we were called to spend eternity with him. We live in a day and age when it seems to me that valuelessness, worthlessness, depression, thoughts of suicide are running rampant in this world. Self-loathing. Yet we find here that the gospel has an answer to even that. Well, the enemy wants to whisper to us, you are worthless. That sin that you keep going back to like a dog to his vomit, you have discredited yourself. You are worthless. You are nothing. And the gospel comes along and says, Well, you're significant enough that the God of the universe, in his entirety, called you out to spend eternity with him. You can't get much more significant than that. And we are significant infinitely so, not because of anything we bring to the table, right? We are rebels. But because we are made in the image of God, and if you're a believer, then the entirety of the Godhead was involved in your calling, your salvation, and your sealing. That is monumental significance. What a message we have to bring to the world that is hurting and lost and feeling valueless. We are called. We are called. But the question is, what are we called to? Okay, so we're called to what? What were John and Jesus and the disciples called to in Mark? let's move from their call to their commission, to their assignment. First, we have John's commission, his assignment, what he was given by God. And he's called to prepare the way, quite simply. We saw that already. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And we notice here that embedded in the call of John is ascending, says, I send my messenger. Where is he being sent? Into the wilderness, isn't he? And then in verse 4, John appears in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 5 says that it's a successful ministry. I mean, people are flocking to be baptized and confessing their sins. And then in verse 6, he records how he's dressed and what he's eating. He was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and, and wild honey. So John, we see, is is living a life that's typical for a holy man of this era. He's out in the wilderness. He's depriving himself of life's comforts, out of devotion for for the God that called him to this task. Very typical. Then in verses 7 and 8, we have a snapshot of his ministry. And he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who's greater. And in verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's a snapshot. It's a, it's a synopsis of that ministry. And so we have John who is called. You are going to be God's messenger, and I'm commissioning you. Here's your assignment. Prepare the way. And we have evidence here that John is being faithful along his commissioning. What about Jesus? Jesus is called, right? He's called the Son of God, my beloved Son. What's his commissioning? Well, in verse 12, we find it. It's to preach the of gospel. Uh, verse 12. We find that, like John, embedded in Jesus' call is ascending. Ascending into the wilderness. You remember John? I send him ahead of you. He goes into the wilderness. Here's Jesus. He was just called, my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him, sent him to go out into the wilderness, where he's tempted for 40 days by Satan himself. So we find here that Jesus endures satanic temptation for over a month and remains faithful. We have to stop here and make a comparison between the first Adam and what Paul calls the last Adam. The first Adam was in paradise. Everything working for him. Tempted once. What happened? Didn't go so well. Here we come, the last Adam. He's not in paradise. He's in the wilderness. He's not eating. He's at his lowest low, and he is tempted by Satan himself for over a month. And the last Adam, he prevails. He's faithful, isn't he? He keeps on going. It's very significant to notice. And then, like John, Mark provides us with a synopsis of Jesus' ministry. in Verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So if Jesus called, You are my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now go and preach the gospel of God and the coming kingdom. Finally, Look at the disciples' commission. They were called by Jesus, and now they're commissioned to fish for men. In verse 17, Jesus himself says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So you start to see this pattern that, that Mark is unrolling. These are not just random sentences, random facts that Mark is t- putting together. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, he is knitting together something very specific for us to watch. John the Baptist was called and sent to preach. Jesus was called and sent to preach. And here we have the disciples who are called and then sent to preach. Go, make disciples of all nations. Fish for men. And while it's a little bit vague in our text this morning, if we if we notice chapter 3, verse 14, it is not vague. This is what it says in chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus appointed the twelve, of which these four were part, so they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach get send them out to preach. So we have this pattern. Called, commissioned. Called, commissioned. Called, commissioned. And if it's true of John and Jesus and the initial disciples, it's true of you and I as well. We've already established that we've been called by the triune God of the universe has called us to you. I want you. And called us to himself. And we all know that we are not called to inactivity are we? We are not called to sit on our hands and wait for eternity. That's not what we're called to do. We're called for action, aren't we? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Just for a moment. You're familiar with this passage, no doubt. Ephesians chapter 2. This is where Paul outlines the gospel in such a grand way. He starts out this passage in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 by saying, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You are helpless. You are lost. You are enslaved to everything. And then in verse 4, he says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, and he reaches in and he saves us by grace through faith. It's a great passage of scripture. But then in verse 10, at the end of this passage, this is how Paul ends. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, in which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, Paul is outlining here that we are saved, not by works, but we are certainly saved to works, to good works. And Titus clarifies this and reaffirms it as well. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Amen. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Amen. Zealous for good deeds? Zealous for good deeds. We want to make it very clear this morning that we are saved by no help of ourselves. Nothing we do, no work we can conjure adds to our salvation. Not our baptism, not the Lord's Supper, not Bible reading, not giving to the church, not Hail Marys. Nothing adds to our salvation. We want to make that very, very, very clear. We do not want to be misheard on that. Nothing adds to our salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. But it would be a big mistake to think that we are saved to nothing. New Testament is very clear. We are saved to good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. We are called and we are commissioned. We are called to himself and sent out with an assignment. And as we move through this book over the next number of weeks, that assignment, that commissioning will be fleshed out and it will become so clear that what we are called to. But for now, suffice it to say that we are not called to inactivity. We are called to good works that we are to be zealous for. I don't know about you, but the thought of being called and commissioned by God, the God of the universe, and that's exciting. I'm called by God. That makes me feel special. I'm commissioned. I'm part of something significant, something bigger than myself. That's special too, isn't it? That gets me excited to participate. But again, the Holy Spirit through Mark wants us to have a realistic set of expectations for what it means to follow Jesus. We are definitely called. We are definitely commissioned. But he adds to that. There are consequences that come along with it. Manage your expectations. There are consequences that come along with it. Again, we follow Mark's pattern, starting with John's consequences. Back in Mark chapter 1. And the consequences are imprisonment. And we know later death, right? Verse 14, it almost seems like a, a throwaway statement, but there's no such thing in scripture, so it can't be. Verse 14, now after John had been taken into custody. So he's been arrested. He's been handed over, the text literally says. He's been handed over. He's been betrayed. So let's get this straight. John is called by the Holy Spirit. You will be my messenger. He is commissioned. He's given this task, prepare the way of the Lord. And John is faithful. And he ends up in prison. In chapter 6, verse 7, which we will get to in weeks to come, we learn that he's eventually beheaded in prison. So that's the thanks he gets for faithfulness to the assignment given to him. Those are the consequences for John. What about Jesus? He's called the Son of God. He's commissioned to go preach the gospel. What were his consequences? Well, we know those, don't we? He was crucified. He was crucified. What's interesting is, is the same word that Mark uses here in verse 14 to describe John's consequences. He was handed over. He was betrayed. Mark uses 14 times to describe Jesus' consequences in the same way. Let's just take a sampling In chapter 9, verse 31, same gospel, chapter 9, verse 31, Mark records this, For he, Jesus, was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered, same word, betrayed, handed over, imprisoned, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Chapter 14, verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Same word. To hand him over. Chapter 15, verse 10. For he, that's Pilate, was unaware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Same word. Verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, He handed him over to be crucified. Fourteen times, Mark wants us to make this connection. John was faithful to his task, and he was handed over, imprisoned, and killed. Jesus, faithful to his task, handed over to be killed. Well, what about the disciples? Well, we're actually never told of their consequences. It's almost as though Mark leaves a blank in the pattern and says, you fill it in. Tell me, what happened to the disciples? John called, commissioned. He was faithful, consequences. Jesus called, commissioned, faithful, consequences. Disciples called, commissioned. Will they be faithful? We're at the beginning of the gospel. We don't know. But we know if they are, the pattern is set. There will be consequences. Same for you and I. We are called and commissioned. Will we be faithful? If we are, if we decide to follow Jesus Christ faithfully, there's going to be consequences. Mark wants to make it very clear from the outset of the gospel. This is an invitation to expectation management. Manage your expectations for what it will be like to follow Jesus. See, Mark is painting a picture here at the outset of his gospel that we as God's people were called and commissioned. And if we are faithful, we can count on it there will be consequences for our faithfulness. I mean, the people that peddle the idea that if you follow Christ, life is smooth sailing. I don't know what Bible they're reading. Honestly. I I don't know how they come to that. The pages of the New Testament alone are replete with examples and promises that there will be a cost the following Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Is a possibility you might be persecuted? No. Will be persecuted. It's a promise. If you live a godly life, in other words, if you are a faithful disciple going after Christ, trying to become more like him, if you are a faithful Christ follower, you will be persecuted scripture says. So why are we surprised? And that's from the outside world. People who don't understand, they're going to persecute us. But the cost can come internally as well, close to home. If we follow Jesus on this trip of discipleship, we can expect perhaps relational consequences. Even this morning, I was talking to someone who's experienced this. Separation from children that decide not to follow Jesus, and there's tension there. In a marriage, one spouse decides, I'm all in. I am following faithfully. The other one says, no thanks. There's tension. Some of you may have had to cut ties with friendships or dating experiences because there was just a difference in worldview. We're going in different directions, and that hurts. There is a cost, a relational cost at times to following Jesus, to discipleship. Jesus himself said, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Because truth is, by its very nature, divisive. And when we cling to the gospel, it's going to divide. If we expect to be faithful in following Jesus, follow after him this journal, journey of discipleship, and that everyone is going to applaud us, all the coworkers are going to say, good for you, that is to miss the point of Mark's gospel. Not everyone will. Some might, by the grace of God. Not everyone will. Following Jesus may include relational consequences. It may include financial consequences. A few chapters from now, a rich man comes running up to Jesus. says, oh, good teacher. I want to inherit eternal life. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, I know what's holding you back. Go sell everything and follow me. Now, that might not be the case for all of us, but for that man, it cost him financially. And for some of us, it might as well. It might mean a switch in jobs. It might mean you get passed over for a promotion. Who knows what it will mean? But there's a chance that it could cost us financially as well as relationally. There might be lifestyle consequences. I praise the Lord I'm not called to the wilderness to eat locusts and wild honey. That was an extreme lifestyle cost. But if I follow Jesus faithfully and live the way He's calling me to live, and continue to watch the same things, run in the same circles, do the same things I always wanted to do in my lost state, there's a disconnect. It's going to cost me some of the things I've grown to love, perhaps. I need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to me, to leave them behind. There could be lifestyle consequences. And perhaps the hardest one, at least I find it the hardest. There may be personal consequences. As we grow in our Christ-likeness, as we follow him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, become more and more like him, the little bits and pieces of the old man living in me, they become increasingly detestable to me. Increasingly so. The more I'm aware of how glorious God is, the more I'm aware of how far I fall short, and I hate that. That's a war, isn't it? I mean, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, says, put to death what is worldly, what is earthly in you. It is a constant battle. And some of those things I hold tightly to. Some of my cherished sins, and I've got to kill those things by the power of God. That's a costly battle. Mark wants us to be very aware, eyes wide open. If you follow Jesus, there will be all sorts of costs. They will be varied, But they will be there. They will be there. Certainly, bank on it. It will happen. Unfortunately, in our day and age, many people wrongly assume that the Christian life can be one that is similar to buying a new purse. It looks nice, it's a good accessory. But if it clashes with the outfit, I can leave it at home. I don't need it necessarily. I'll take it or leave it. It's optional. We'll call this cultural Christianity or nominal discipleship. I'm kind of in when it's convenient for me, but when it's not, I'm out. These are the people that, for, for them, their Christianity, their faith, their discipleship, it leaves no impact on their actual life. You see no life change. You see no fruit. And I want to be very frank with you this morning that that gospel is not the gospel that leads to eternal life. That is not the same thing that cultural Christianity. And that type of a gospel is absolutely foreign to Mark as we see this morning and as we will see as we go through this book of the Bible. Mark is calling for all in. He's saying it's going to cost you something. We just need to understand that at the outset. outset. And, And Mark wants to make that clear right off the bat that there are significant consequences to following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Significant consequences in being faithful to God. We saw that through John. We saw that in Jesus. We saw that in disciples. And we'll see that in our own lives as well. Now, kind of a downer message, huh? Mark will go on to describe, and you all know, that there are incredible blessings to following Jesus. The blessings far, far, far outweigh the cost, certainly. And he will go on to describe that we have a power available to us to help us to endure those consequences. He will get to that, but for now, in this opening section of his gospel account, he just wants us to be aware. Manage your expectations. Are you going to take up this mission that God is inviting us to, that has blessings, that has rewards, that has power, but also has costs? Manage those expectations. Don't be caught off guard. Bring the expectations down to reality. Let's minimize the amount of disillusionment that we will experience, the amount of frustration that is open to us. Mark is essentially inviting us to count the cost. Here's the mission, he says. Here's who you're following. Is it worth it? And that's a question that no one can answer for you. No one. Your parents can't answer that for you. Your kids can't answer that for you. Your spiritual mentor can't answer it for you. The elders can't answer it. It's only you. And God's asking you, are you going to pick up that cross and follow me? Are you coming on this mission, this journey of discipleship, knowing full well that there are consequences? Come eyes wide open. You know, heeding the warning that Mark provides us here in the introduction to his gospel. May we as a church family, by God's grace, become a people that can, like the apostles in Acts 5, they're ridiculed, they're ostracized, they're beaten. They're imprisoned. You remember this? And yet, we find them in Acts 5 rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. May that be us. May we not expect that this discipleship is going to be consequence-free. There is coming a time, like we, like we sang about, that glorious day, there is coming a time when we will rejoice in, in a kingdom that is pure and free from sin. But that is not now. I don't need to convince you of that. There will be consequences. There will be costs. But we want to rejoice that we've been considered worthy to suffer for his name. What a what an otherworldly testimony and witness. What an otherworldly divine testimony and witness to a God of power and grace and to the gospel of all power and salvation. What an incredible thing. We need to show each other that. Because there are times when we suffer, right? When we struggle and when we're suffering and we're we're experiencing the consequences, we need other believers to say, we're with you. Remind us that this is part and parcel of the trip of discipleship. But we also want to show the world something that they have no idea of, that people can suffer, that they can be so enamored with the one who's called them and the power of that call and so enthralled with the the mission that they've been given that they will endure any consequences for the sake of his name. When people come and they're amazed by that, we say, let me tell you a little something about that. Let me tell you how I'm able to do that. May we count the cost as a church, as individual disciples. And may by God's grace and by his power and for his glory, may he continue to shape us To the church and the individual disciples that he longs for us to be. Let's pray together. Father, it is a privilege and a demonstration of your grace that we are called. We bring nothing to the table. And yet you have seen it fit. It pleased you to call us out of darkness into light. And you haven't just called us to wait, but you have called us into action. And we thank you for that as well. The exciting action to be part of something significant. Part of the church. Something that the gates of hell will not prevail against. We get to be part of this. We get to be used by you in spite of ourselves. What an incredible privilege. But Father, help us not to stop there. We pray that you guard us from mismanaged expectation. We ask that you guard us from thinking that this will be an easy journey. We're never promised any such thing. We know that there will be cost. There will be consequences associated with this journey. And so we stand here now, Father, as your people, asking for your help. Help us to endure. Help us to be faithful in spite of the cost. Again, we ask these things in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, for your glory and your glory alone. Amen for those who have experienced the consequences of faithfulness to our call, we pray that they would see your sufficiency, that you are enough. For those who are about to experience the consequences of faithfulness, we pray that they would find you sufficient, that you would be enough. And for those in our midst that are currently experiencing the consequences of faithfulness, we pray that they would find you enough, that you would be sufficient that they would experience your amazing grace. Father, for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.